Good afternoon. Welcome to the Democracy Forum. This is the 10th program in our series this year to broadcast at this time on the third Friday of each month. Um, We're featuring topics in Maine's participatory democracy, encouraging citizens to take an active role in government and politics. This program is a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Our conversation today is election reflections. What just happened here? It will be less about how the parties and the candidates perform more perhaps about how democracy performed. How did the election machinery hold up? How did our voters and our institutions hold up? Have our citizens embraced or rejected the legitimacy of the outcomes? And what does it all mean in the context of the bigger conversation we've been having all year about the future of Western democracy? This show is being pre-recorded on November 14th as results in some states are still being tabulated. We're not taking any listener calls at this time. You can send comments or questions to news at weru.org. Please put Democracy Forum in the subject line. This is Ann Luther. I'm from the League of Women Voters of Maine, and I'm your host for the Democracy Forum. Let me introduce our guests. Maya Eichhorn is a liberal studies student at York County Community College and a fellow with Maine Students Vote, an affiliate of the League of Women Voters of Maine. Maya, we're very happy to have you here today. Welcome. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Elaine Kmark is the founding director at the Center for Effective Public Management and a senior fellow in governance studies at Brookings. Welcome, Elaine. Thank you for having me. Delighted to have you join us. And Steve Missler is the chief political correspondent and State House Bureau Chief for Maine Public, one of the keenest observers of the political scene in Maine. Thanks for joining us, Steve. It's my pleasure. All right, so let's get started. Uh, Elaine, I'll put it to you first. We've been talking all year about whether democracy can hold on, whether it will face up to the rise of authoritarianism. What that just happened in this election makes you think one way or the other? I can say so far, so good. Okay. This was a surprisingly peaceful election. Um, At Brookings, we are in the midst of tabulating not just which election deniers won and lost, but the margins by which they won and lost. Um, It looks like there are states where election deniers got basically wiped out. And that's pretty good for democracy because these people were were without any evidence challenging the legitimacy of American elections. So, so far, so good. Uh, It remains to be seen whether or not the election denier movement will try to allege that this set of elections was also illegitimate as they did with 2020. We don't know we don't know that yet, but uh so far uh, there's a lot of silence there. And part of it is that there's some confusing results. So you take the state of um Nevada where the election den- uh where the governor who w- was kind of not an election denier um but was, you know, endorsed by Trump, he wins. And then Laxalt, the Republican Senate candidate, loses. So it becomes a little bit hard for people to say, well, yeah, you know, somehow everything was okay with the governor's race and it's not okay with the Senate race when, in fact, it was the same time, same election happening under the same circumstances. So, um, uh, so far, so good. 
Uh, that doesn't mean we're out of the woods. There are plenty of election deniers at the state legislative level. There are plenty in the House of Representatives who have less authority over elections than these statewide uh, officers do. But um, so far, so good. Uh, the other thing we did not see is we did not see a lot of violence at the polling places. Um, police all over the country were alerted to the fact that this could happen. There were police presence at a lot of places. But um, again, as I say, so far, so good. What did you see in Maine, Steve? Uh, mostly the same. I mean, um, to the extent that we had any outright election deniers on the ballot this year, they were in the legislature, uh, legislative candidates. And um, for the most part, I think, you know, election deniers, either they either lost or, you know, they if they when they did lose, they conceded. And that's the other thing I noticed uh, nationwide, too, is that a lot of the uh, election deniers actually conceded and gracefully exited the stage. Uh, that's not the case for all of them, of course, as Elaine knows all too well, I'm sure. Um, and we're still waiting to see what happens in Arizona. But in Maine, I think, uh, generally speaking, we saw, well, in the governor's race, I mean, Governor Paula Page, whether you want to call him an election denier or not, he certainly used election denial rhetoric early in 2020 and then kind of came around to the idea that, yes, Joe Biden is president uh, and, he, and he was duly elected. Uh, he lost and he conceded. Um, and he accepted the, the end, you know, the results of the election. So that is that's one example. And I think, generally speaking, that's the way the main Republicans have gone uh, with the, what they've done so far and uh, right on down the line. Did we see any polling place incidents in Maine, Steve? No, not that I'm aware of. I think there was a smattering of, um, you know, some incidences, but I'm not exactly sure where because they were spoken about in the aggregate. They weren't identified by the Secretary of State's office. The other thing that we did see is um, there was there were a lot more poll watchers from the Republican side this year, and that caused initially some concern as absentee ballots were being processed as we approached the, you know, the deadline to uh, to use no excuse absentee balloting. That turned out those concerns turned out to be for nothing. I mean, it, it was a little bit weird to see so many Republican poll watchers at a one precinct when usually one would do. Um, so they they had more people there, but to the extent that voters were intimidated or um, they were that the uh, poll watchers were causing problems, we had, we didn't hear, hear a peep about that. So that's that's good news. Maya, I know you had a question about clerks and administrators. Go ahead and put your question. Yeah, well, I know we're seeing a lot of the top election officials in states across the country, the the election deniers have been losing their races. But I wanted to talk more on a local level, especially in Maine, are the smaller election administration positions are, are the election deniers winning those at all? That's a great question. I, I don't believe that they are. Um, but, you know, they're also not on the ballot, you know, because a lot of these folks are um, they're hired by municipalities. And to the extent that they that they are administrating elections in this state, um, they're not identified. So they're not known to us. But I suspect that if they were, um, that we would hear about it. And we just haven't. So that's a good sign um, as well, because as we've seen in other states like Colorado, for example, uh, that's a shining example where one person there is actually actually under indictment, I believe, um, for her role in the 2020 election. But that was 
um, that was a county clerk official that had gotten involved um, and, uh, you know, was noodling around and, you know, show, sharing do, uh, voters private information um, with, uh, you know, with Trump activists and that sort of thing. To the extent that has not happened in Maine, at least to our knowledge. And if it had, we would certainly hear about it, I would think. Elaine, we're seeing a bunch of press about the election administration in in Maricopa County. And I, I read that guy has been under death threats. I mean, how is that machinery going to hold up if people are under that kind of pressure? Well, the big fear going into this election, and I think it's still around, is that the far, far right has, along with violent, you know, types, have been threatening election officials all over the country and actually causing some of them to leave, right, leave their office. And then the office is either open or you have to find somebody else to to replace them. Um, Maricopa County is kind of ground zero for all of this stuff. Um, including the most bizarre and ridiculous um, election, you know, conspiracy theories about elections. So Maricopa County, this is Phoenix, basically. It is the center of the vote in the state. It's by far and away the biggest, biggest county. So, you know, if you're doing well there, you're going to win. In Maricopa County, you had um, election um, observers who got the permission to go through and do a privately funded audit of re- recount really of the of the ballots and they were going through and one of the things they were looking for bamboo in the ballots okay the most the most ridiculous thing i've ever heard it ranks right up there with hillary clinton and the pedophile ring in the pizza parlor in washington okay and the story was that somehow china had printed 40,000 bam, uh, ballots. They had traces of bamboo fiber in them, God knows why, um, and sent them to America, filled them out and sent them to Maricopa County. And that was why uh, Trump lost Arizona. Um, so, you know, th- this has really been ground zero for that. Now, in Maricopa, they did have a couple of problems on election day um, with printers reading the ballots, but they got over that pretty quickly. And um, so far, you know, Maricopa is still being counted. They are obviously being exquisitely careful. And the big race that's still not decided there is, of course, the governor's race, um, where Carrie Lake has been a leading election denier. But she's behind. And since the remaining ballots, as I understand it, are in Maricopa County, and by the time this airs, this show airs, it may they may be finished. Um, since the remaining ballots are in Maricopa County, it looks like she will lose. If she loses, um, that will be a clean sweep in terms of defeats of election deniers in a state that has really, really, really been been you know racked by this issue. So, Steve, uh, how do you think the the free press performed? We're talking about how our institutions performed. How do you think the press held up to its job in this election cycle? Uh, well, in terms of, in, in ter- well, I won't talk, I won't address its job and the horse race coverage. I won't do that. <laughs> but I will talk about um, how it's, I, did, I do think the press writ large has done a pretty good job of, um, identifying and trying to hold accountable election deniers. And, and I'm talking about nationwide. And also 
I think on the, on the uh, local level too, I think um, for one example, I, Lane was talking about the bamboo fibers and the, the audit in Arizona and everything else. Well, that we had a main representative that wanted essentially to replicate that effort here in this state and would, had been distributing affidavits to do just that. The affidavits had no force of law and were basically meaningless, but it was the gesture and you know and the and the denialism behind it that was cause for concern. Particularly what that representative did win re-election. Uh, her name is Heidi Sampson. But we've identified those folks for the public. And I think that's good. Uh, a necessary uh, part of our job too, and I, you know, and with even with Governor LePage, his positions um, on uh, President uh, Biden's win, for example, were well known, and 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 that's why he was asked questions about it in debates and in media interviews, and he didn't really a- handle those questions very well, to be honest with you. But those answers were at least available for the public, and the public could then assess whether or not his answers were credible. And I think that's a good that's a good thing. I think the question you're asking me is a better one for you guys to answer, actually, because uh, we're constantly looking for that feedback. We get it uh, often, but I, you know, uh, in, in general, I'm, I think we've d- we did a pretty good job here in Maine. And I think nationally uh, on this issue, I think the press has done a good job to, as well, tracking these folks, showing them where they are, being in touch with people like Elaine at Brookings to help with that research. So I think in general, yes, I think the press has done a pretty good job on that front. What do you think, Elaine? Um, You know, I think the press has done a pretty good job on the election denial issue because they continuously pointed out that there were no, there was simply no proof. The proof never arrived, ba- you know, that of Trump's allegations. I am sure that if there had been proof, given what a you know dramatic story that was, um, I'm sure that the press would have jumped on it, and we all would have known about it. But not only did Trump and the election denier f- movement fail to convince the press. More importantly, they failed to convince the more than 100 judges who had to look at these cases that were brought. And most of these cases were simply dismissed out of hand. And in some instances, the judges, including, by the way, judges who had been nominated by Trump, uh, really uh, reprimanded the lawyers for bringing up trivial you know, lawsuits that had, frankly, no basis in fact. So I, I think that while this movement got a lot of momentum in 2021, as the days went on, and there was never a smoking gun, there was never actual proof of this, and Biden continued to be president and, and you know, life went on, I think that the movement kind of lost some of its credibility. Mm-hmm. I want to do a short station break, and then we'll come back to how did our institutions perform for one more question. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU-FM. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our topic today is election reflections. What just happened here? Our guests this afternoon are Elaine K. Mark, founding director at the Center for Effective Public Management and senior fellow in governance studies at Brookings, Steve Missler, chief political correspondent and State House Bureau chief 
Chief for Maine Public, and Maya Eichhorn, Liberal Studies student at York County Community College and a fellow with Maine Students Vote, an affiliate of the League of Women Voters of Maine. This program was pre-recorded on November 14th. No listener calls are being taken at this time. So we're talking about how our institutions performed in this election, and I want to just ask you one more question about this, which is gerrymandering. What role do you think gerrymandering played in the way the election went and in the way democracy functions overall? And I, I know this is a topic that you've written about, Elaine, so I'll ask you first. Well, it's gerrymandering is a problem. In fact, what we're living with today is maybe the biggest, most comprehensive gerrymander in American history that we've seen since, of course, the original Eldridge Derry doing it, um, which is the gerrymander that occurred in the 2010 cycle. And the gerrymander then really has lived on in some ways. Uh, the courts have been very reluctant to get into the gerrymandering issue. Um, and it creates a lot of, there's a lot of attention to it, but fundamentally, um, gerrymandering persists. And the Republicans have held more state legislatures than the Democrats. Therefore, they have been more in control. Now, I expect that may change because the Democrats have picked up four state houses, state legislative bodies so far. And so uh, if they pay more attention and and do better at the state legislative level, they may, um, you know, they may do better on on drawing districts in the future for Democrats. But let me also say this, there is a built-in problem quite apart from gerrymandering, which is relatively new in American history. And that is that Americans tend to move these days. We're a mobile society and we move to live near people that are like us. And so what happens, I mean, we first saw this, you know, the most clearest example was gay and lesbian couples who wanted to move to parts of the big cities where they didn't feel uncomfortable walking down the street holding hands. And so we started to see several decades ago, you know, segments of the big cities in New York City and San Francisco, where lots of people who had a similar lifestyle wanted to move to be with others with a similar lifestyle. Well, that that just has picked up all the way across the board. In Tennessee, a state that used to be a pretty competitive state, it's now a very Republican state. Part of the reason is that people who homeschool their children have moved to Tennessee. Obviously, if you homeschool, you want to be with a lot of other families who are homeschooling so that you can have a social life for your children and, and do things together. So for reasons unrelated to politics, Americans have tended to flock together and that has had political consequences. So that's the second reason. The third reason I'll say on gerrymandering is that there is an, and because every state is required to have one member of Congress at least, Rural states are overrepresented in terms of their population in the House of Representatives. The most the, the most stunning example is Wyoming, okay, where the one congressional district formerly held by Liz Cheney um, has about half the people of the rest of the congressional districts in America. And so that tends to give a, a slight edge 
to the Republican Party um, since they have be, they are in our day and age hasn't always been the case, but in our day and age, that's the party of where mostly rural people are. So so gerrymandering is important, but it, it's important also to realize it's not the whole story. Mm-hmm. Steve, I wonder if you see this playing out in Maine, the um, the migration patterns that Elaine talked about. And, you know, we sometimes hear about the two Maines. I don't really know what that's <laughs> a real thing or not. But did, did that sort of come out in this election and the way voters split between the two parties? Unclear at the moment, but I what I it is interesting because we took a look at this uh, during the pandemic when we were seeing a lot of in migration to the state uh, for various reasons, people moving here, um, sometimes away from uh, cities or populated areas because they they felt safer here, and they also there was a the people could work from home, so Maine actually saw a population increase, which may or may not have helped preserve the the two congressional seats that we have because there was some discussion. Fired not that long ago about Maine potentially losing one of those seats because of its decline in population. It's hard to know, but what we what we did find when we did look at this is that is exactly what Elaine just pointed out: sorting. We saw that a lot of folks that identified a certain partisan lean were moving to areas where that partisan lean was present. You know, so they were moving to places where they knew that where they were people were more like them. Uh, politically speaking, so that was definitely happening. To the ex- to the extent that that was reflected in the results last week, unclear because, uh, frankly, Governor Janet Mills did so well, and she actually picked up uh, support in conservative areas. Did much better than she did in 2018, which was a Democratic wave year, and she also did well in. Uh, the Portland suburbs and the bedroom communities outside of the city, uh, much better than she did in 2018, which allowed her to to win re-election so handily. So, it's it's hard to know exactly whether that sorting has whether it's how how much it affected last week, but it certainly has happened, uh, and it'll be interesting to see if it continues to happen, especially if Maine sort of gains a reputation as a blue state. I think we're generally considered a purple state with very pockets of deep blue and maybe people are moving to those areas. And um, so we'll have to just kind of wait to see over time. Do you see that in your work, Maya, at all in terms of where young people are? Yeah, absolutely. I think especially talking with there are other fellows up. uh, There's a fellow at Kennebec Valley Community College and the climate there around politics is very different than it is in York County. And there's definitely a lot of young people moving to Southern Maine for college and voting because that's something they're able to do as out-of-state college students in Maine. That's definitely made an impact in this election. Mm. All right. Well, we've started talking about how our voters performed. We did a little bit about how our institutions performed. How did our voters perform? Uh, was turnout high everywhere? It was in Maine, I think, wasn't it? It was incredibly high in Maine, over 70%. I don't know. I think that's almost routine for this state because we're a high turnout state. But at the same time, it was it's still pretty impressive, especially when you match it up against the rest of the country. Was it that high around the country, Elaine, or higher? Well, we- 
We don't know yet. Uh, the, the short answer is we don't know yet because it takes so long to really get official vote counts. But uh, every sign is that turnout was very high. Um, the question is, will it be as high as it was in 2018, which broke all records for midterm turnout? And of course, as, as our listeners probably know, uh, turnout in presidential years is much higher than turnout in midterm elections. Um, but between 2018 and 2022, these are very high um, turnouts. It, it's looking like very high turnouts. Now, part of that is turnout is driven by competition. So, you know, when you have a, a, a really exciting race, and this one really was for all sorts of reasons, right? Um, Donald Trump was back. He was not on the ballot, but he was playing heavily in these races, and people feel passionately about him one way or the other. Um, so that, I think, helped drive turnout. Um, I think the abortion issue clearly drove turnout among, especially among younger people, and that was a very much a Democratic vote. So um, I think there were a lot of things that drove turnout this time. I'm not sure it's going to get to 2018 levels, but I think it'll probably be very close. Maya, I know you wanted to ask a question about young people voting. Go ahead and put it out there. Yeah, well, I've seen well, with a lot of my work has been talking to young people and getting them out and voting. And we're seeing that young people went overwhelmingly for Democrats in like a 28 point margin for Democrats uh, among young people across the country. How is this shifting, you know, the future of our elections with Gen Z clearly being extremely motivated to vote and the issues they're voting on have definitely made them an, an overwhelmingly democratic body of voters. Well, it, it bodes well for the Democrats in the future. And the reason is, and this is a, there's a common misperception out there that voters get more conservative as they age. That's actually not true. OK, voters tend to more or less keep their party identification from their first vote on. In other words, what shapes them, the factors that shape them in their first vote. So, for instance, uh, some people call the millennial generation um, who are now um, some of them are young, but some of them are moving into middle age. Some people call the millennial generation the Obama generation. Their first vote was 2008. They loved Obama. And in fact, if you took out in, in 2008, if you took out all the people, all the voters under the age of 30 in 2008, Obama would have lost. OK, so that now that shows you the generational you know, unity. Subsequent generations are not as big as the millennial generation. OK, so Gen Z is a much smaller generation. Therefore, the impact wouldn't be as great. Nonetheless, um, younger generations than the millennials seem to have kept that same um, democratic tendency. That doesn't mean, by the way, for our listeners, it doesn't mean that there aren't young people who are Republicans. There certainly are. But this is just an overall tendency. And the most Republican generation are people over 65 years of age. OK, so play that out a couple of uh, elections. Hence, um, the younger what one thing we know about young voters is that they do vote more often as they get older. 
they're they're more likely to vote. And of course, one thing we know about old people is that after a while, they're not with us anymore. So and there you go. That's that's one way to look at the next decade of American politics. What did you observe? It, oh, go ahead, Maya. Sorry. Well, I was just going to ask Steve, um, how powerful are young people in Maine right now? I know we're seeing our our college age population growing. How how is that making an effect in Maine's election results? Well, that's a great question, and I don't have a great answer for you because we don't have. Unfortunately, the way Maine uh, produces its voter data, it, it doesn't get granular in the sense that we, you know, basically we could just tell whether or not you voted, and it doesn't get the public data that's available doesn't break out by age or um, or even gender really. So it's it's a sort of a shortcoming of the state's data, which is uh, there are one of many, unfortunately, not 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 necessarily on elections. Uh, exclusively. But one thing I did notice, um, or this is purely anecdotal from election day, as we were sort of, you know, combing around the state and trying to get a sense of what was going on out there as results were coming in, is that there were a lot of anecdotal reports of big lines with young people voting in the college towns, big lines at same day voter registration, which is usually um, a, a tool that younger voters use to register to vote. They they show up on election day and they can register to vote and then they can vote. We heard anecdotally and also through the secretary of state that same day voter registration was high. That bodes well for the youth turnout and, and, and you know, and as an indicator. And um, what we will get some data on same day voter registration and hopefully there'll be some information about the age of those folks. But if, if those anecdotes proved, you know, prove uh, true, um, and are you know backed up by the data that speaks to the the youth votes power in this state I think because you have to be able to talk you have to talk to those folks if you're a politician that it, it would it's a signal to those politicians that you're present you're voting you're active you're paying attention and they're going to have to listen to you uh, so I hope that hopefully the youth turnout is high because I think that's just generally a good thing um, mm-hmm. that that the youth turns out to vote so. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this afternoon are Elaine Kmark, founding director at the Center for Effective Public Management and senior fellow in governance studies at Brookings, Maya Eichhorn, liberal studies student at York County Community College and a fellow with Maine Students Vote, an affiliate of the League of Women Voters of Maine, and Steve Missler, chief political correspondent and State House Bureau Chief for Maine Public. Our topic today is election reflections what just happened here this show was pre-recorded send your comments or questions to news at weru.org please put democracy forum in the subject line we're talking about how our voters performed in this election and my i know you had a question about voter suppression ask both of our guests your question go ahead a lot of my work this election cycle had been talking to students at my college and i helped a lot of uh, homeless students learn how they were going to vote and help them create a voting plan. And it made me more aware of the inability in a lot of cases for homeless people to vote. Uh, And after some research, I found out only about 10% of homeless Americans vote in each election. So I think to me, that's, that's some level of that is, is an implicit voter suppression, but where in in America right now, is voter suppression still an issue? 
Elaine. Yeah, voter suppression is, I mean, uh, there's an obvious reason why homeless people don't vote, which is you need an address to vote and they don't have an address. Now, I'm sure that there's smart people working on this problem, but that that's 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 your bottom line there. Um, Public service announcement, they can vote in Maine. Okay, okay. <laughs> uh, most true. places, this is very hard to do. Right. <laughs> um, but the big voter suppression has always been directed at the African-American community, and it's directed at African-Americans because they vote anywhere from 88 to 93% Democratic. So it makes sense that the Republican Party um, would try to keep African-Americans from voting. After the 2020 election in Georgia, there were some really terrible pieces of legislation and introduced into the state legislature to clearly intended to suppress the African-American vote. They were modified somewhat and they passed. And we don't know for sure, but right now it really doesn't look like African-Americans were hurt in their efforts to vote. It looks like they had they had just as good turnout as as they always have. So I'm not sure how much uh, voter suppression there was in this election, but I can tell you it is always a topic because of the overwhelming Democratic tendency of African-Americans. That may probably apply to other places too, um, but it's really, the the big one is African-Americans. You know, Maine has um, enjoyed a good reputation for voter turnout and very expansive voter laws, and people attribute that to the fact that we are largely a white state and we don't have some of these racial issues. But Steve, did we did we see any voter suppression happening in Maine this time? Not that I'm aware of. Um, and generally, as you pointed out, just the ease of voting in this state is makes it really hard to do that. You know what I mean? I think, and it's sort of culturally, culturally embedded too in this state. So if anybody was given a hard time about registering to vote or something like that, that would stand out, you know, that would stand out at a polling location. um, And we would hear about it in the press and we, we would certainly check it out. So we just haven't seen that. In fact, our, you know, our voting as as a lot of as Elaine pointed out, there's been some voter suppression laws passed in other states where the, you know they're doing everything from limiting polling locations or the number of precincts in some places, you know, to to make people have to drive farther to get to a polling location. In Maine, we saw basically an expansion of voting rights in this state over the past couple of years, and I expect we'll continue to do that uh, with Democrats in control of the state legislature again. Yeah, Can go I ahead. Add one thing yeah. yeah. You know, it's it's interesting to think about this because one of the things that happened in because of the pandemic, not because of politics, but because of the pandemic is that states in 2020 made a huge effort to make it easier to vote remotely. And of course, this then became for Donald Trump the reason why he lost the election, okay, because all these people cheated in absentee ballots. But the fact of the matter is that we saw in 2022, 2020 rather, for the very first time in history, only 30% of the population voted in person. Because nobody, I mean, remember 2020 was before vaccines and everything. Nobody wanted to go stand in a school auditorium and catch COVID just to vote. Interestingly enough, those changes, 
the expansion, as Steve referred to, of, of absentee vote voting, no excuse absentee voting, the creation of early voting and, and ballot boxes, those things are very popular. Okay. And most of the election deniers had on as their platform to either to reduce or even get rid of no ex- things like no excuse absentee ballot. Nobody has done it yet. And I doubt that they will. And the reason is voters like it. And what we saw in 2022, when we started to analyze the early vote was, guess what? There were a heck of a lot of Republicans voting early, as well as Democrats. So I think this expansion, making it easier to vote, that really took place because of COVID, um, I think that will be with us for a while. And as you said, in Maine, hopefully, as in Maine, in other states, this will help us get higher voter turnout. Were you going to say something, Steve? I just wanted to add real quick that just to build off what Elaine said, that once you've given voters that increased access, it's really hard to to take it back from them. And we saw that in Maine in, in 2011. Republicans took control of the legislature. The first one of the first things they tried to do was eliminate same day voter registration. And they did it. Then the voters came back via people's veto and took it right back. And so it's, you know, it's really hard once you expand voting rights to to retract them. Uh, The voters just won't have it. Yep. So we're talking about how our systems perform. I want to ask you go into a next series of topics here. What's the state of our civil discourse? You know, there's been a lot of talk about TikTok and Twitter and social media and mis and disinformation. Um, Did we have a robust policy debate? Did the real issues come through or did mis and disinformation drive some of this? Who would like to go first? Elaine? I, you know, it's hard to say whether because we we didn't have a real national debate, right? We had right. fifty state debates. Um, I think the word got out. Okay, I mean, I I think people were able to debate it, but there's there was plenty of disinformation. Um, remember that some of this disinformation does not come from within the United States. It comes from Russia. It comes from China. It comes from other people who like to play on our the differences we have and and kind of exacerbate them. So that's that's going on. Uh, the government, the federal government, is working hard to try to figure that out. Um, but. It's a moving target. It looks like Elon Musk is trying to destroy Twitter, and I wish him well because it's just a ridiculous thing. And it is, you know, while it's sometimes very funny, I must say the jokes on Twitter do are pretty good. Um, the fact is that you can't have serious discourse in 140 characters, um, nor should you try. Uh, one final point: I'm hoping that as Donald Trump fades, so will the level of anger and vitriol in the public resource, public discourse fade. He has been 100% responsible for changing the tone of American politics, and it's not been for the better. So um, my sort of optimistic hope is that as he fades, our discourse will get better. Well, speaking of political discourse, Steve, part of the story in Maine was the money. Oh my God, the money. Comment on how that contributed to or distracted from a real um, hard look at what was going on. Well, unfortunately, it it what it does is it just sucks all the oxygen out of the room because you know it just it it dominates the press co- coverage too. Not just because of the money spent, 
but the messages too. And and I I see the the misinformation, disinformation, and the money is almost linked, especially in the gubernatorial race here, because what we saw is that especially from the outside groups, the groups working independently of the candidate campaigns, those groups, some of those groups, and one in particular. Uh, here in in Maine, not not located in Maine, but we're out of state, but operating here in Maine, was just pushing the envelope all all the way and just outright falsehoods, you know, and and they had millions of dollars to spend, all financed by one person. $3 million they dumped on the Maine governor's race. It didn't appear to have much of an effect, but it makes the press have to engage and and check that stuff because the ads were so pre- present. I mean, this one particular group was running ads during the Patriots game right before election day. And they were, they were devastating ads. They were, they were brutal and they were brutally dishonest. Um, and so there was a lot of, th- that was a problem. And the money is another issue too, is the problem with the money is that the people with all of it, and are running these camp these packs, if you will, um, they're not accountable to the public. So they can say things that the candidates they support cannot, because those candidates would have to answer questions from the press or even their constituents about why they're running these dishonest ads. But these groups can work without any sort of accountability at all. They, you know, outside of getting fact checked, and they don't seem to mind that because they actually like the attention. And so that's a problem too. Um, and. So I don't know how you solve that. Uh, obvi- well, I know how you solve it, but um, I don't know how you solve it in the short term. But um, it was—it's definitely a factor, and I think it also just um, really irritates voters. I—I I can't tell you, and I get complaints all the time about ads mm-hmm. in every election, but I—I I can't tell you how many times I've heard from people basically saying, "Why? Why are they allowed to lie? Why are they allowed to do this? Why? They, why can they spend so much money?" The answers are hard uh, to deliver to people, but. Maybe someday uh, the voters will take that into their own hands and, um, and 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 put a stop to it. Maya, you talk about TikTok because your cohort is all on TikTok and China's on TikTok. So it's absolutely true. I think TikTok's had a big influence over the political habits of the younger generations, and we see with platforms like like TikTok, Twitter, YouTube, what have you, at any social media, it's incentivizing the the furthest extremes of any group. You know, you you get the most clicks, the most likes, the most therefore money and profit from from platforming the most extreme people and I think it's definitely having an effect on the younger generations and although as we mentioned, they're voting overwhelmingly Democrat. I think those that are voting Republican and and those that are voting Democrat are going to the most extreme ends of those parties because that's that's all they're seeing on social media is the most extreme opinions. Do, do you think that's contributing to extremism, Elaine? Oh, it definitely is because you know all, all these all these nutty ideas that people get in their heads. In the old days, you know how it would have worked. I mean, in the old days, some guy would get some crazy idea about something and would 
go to the bar and meet with his buddies and his buddies would say, oh, come on, <laughs> that's ridiculous, right? Um, there was always, there was a better reality check. Now, you if you've got some crazy idea about something, you can sit home and go searching on the web and you can find other people who actually believe that too. Or you can find other people who say, hey, that that sounds right to me. And that sort of that sort of absence of reality checks is what is prevalent on the internet. And it didn't used to be, right? That we, first of all, anything that was media in the old days had some, some weird thing called editors. Editor's job was to fact check and to actually look at what a story said or what a television um, presentation said and said, well, is this accurate, right? Fact checkers used to exist. Fact checkers don't exist on the internet. And so all manner of nutty stuff um, gets on there. Now, I will say that um, Americans are pretty smart. And I think young people being tech savvy are aware of the fact that there's a lot of nonsense on the internet that just, you know, they need to ignore. On the other hand, the, the, the scariest stuff on the internet is the nonsense that just has a little bit of a twin twinge of truth to it, or that explains something that people don't understand. And that I think is, is exceedingly dangerous. Mm -hmm. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this afternoon are Maya Eichhorn, liberal studies student at York Community College and a fellow with Maine Students Vote. Elaine K. Mark, founding director at the Center for Effective Public Management and senior fellow in governance studies at Brookings. And Steve Missler, chief political correspondent and state house bureau chief for main public. We're talking about the election, election reflections, what just happened here. This program was pre-recorded on 11-14. No listener calls are being taken at this time. So we're talking about how democracy and democratic inst institutions held up. And um, so for the next couple of minutes, I want to talk about the two parties. We live in a two-party system. You know, how is the two-party system holding up? How did independent candidates fare? How did third parties fare? And how did the two major parties, I mean, not in terms of the vote turnout, but in terms of their power and influence and effectiveness as a party, how are they holding up? What would you say about that in Maine, Steve? Well, I think uh, from the Democrats' perspective, in terms of their power and their influence, I mean, at the moment, um, nothing has changed. They hold all the power in this state. Um, they control um, the legislature, the governorship, the um, even the constitutional officers or state's attorney general, uh, secretary of state, you know, which is also our chief elections administrator. And of course, in um, uh, the congressional delegation with one exception, two exceptions, really, if you count um, independent Senator Angus King um, and Republican Senator Susan Collins are the only exceptions here. But in terms of the election results and what was on the table, it was all Democrats retained all the power that they have. And um, the only seat that they don't hold is that U.S. Senate seat that uh, Republican Senator Susan Collins holds, and as well as uh, Angus King as well, although he caucuses with Democrats. So Democrats have to feel pretty good about what everything that happened. Um, you could They probably feel as though um, their approach has been validated by voters, and therefore that's useful for them. The main Republicans are are, are are studying contrast. They're in big trouble 
and I think are going through a major identity crisis because they wedded themselves like so many other state parties across the country to President Donald Trump. And as a result of that, I think um, that affected their candidate recruitment in a lot of ways and the types of candidates that would or that or politicians that would even associate with that party, people who doubted Donald Trump have been expelled from the party or excommunicated in some cases. And so they have some soul searching to do because they got walloped last week. And so, you know, in terms of how those two parties are holding up, you, you couldn't ask for a, a bigger study in contrasts than the way those two parties are in Maine. And then you asked about independence. Well, we did have ind- we had one independent candidate on the gubernatorial ballot this year, but he didn't really run a uh, much of a campaign. He didn't run on any any set of issues really. And so he didn't get a lot of attention. Um, and he also didn't, he self-financed and didn't, decided he didn't want to spend a lot of money. We also had an independent in the second congressional district race, Tiffany Bond, very familiar face. She's run for office a couple of times now. She will have an effect on that race, uh, but she won't, she, she really was a long shot. And, and therefore, you know, that's not necessarily helpful to the independent brand, if you will. Um, but certainly will affect the outcome because of the rank choice factor. And I think um, gave voters who didn't like either party candidate at least an option, which is a nice feature of rank choice voting. You, you know, you your protest vote doesn't have to be in vain uh, with rank choice voting. It, that's just sort of a 30,000 foot assessment um, for now. Well, let's put it to you. Elaine, how is the two-party system holding up? Well, it's stronger than ever. Voters simply see almost all issues through their partisan identification. And that was why we had, there were so many people who were wrong about the, the impact of inflation on this election, is that they forgot that everybody's polarized. And if you're a Democrat, you might say to the pollster, yes, inflation is a big problem. But you think, to, but you say, but I'm going to vote for the Democrats because, you know, that President Joe, he's he's doing all right and he's going to fix the supply chains and therefore it's going to be OK. And if you're Republican, you say, yes, inflation is a big problem. Um, and um, that President Joe, he's responsible for all of it. And so I'm going to vote for a Republican. Right. That's that is the case with so many public policy issues where you can't really trust the issue itself anymore. Now, the one exception, and this is what all the pundits missed, the one exception to this was the issue of abortion. Because here the two parties are clearly divided. One party is for it and one party is against it. And that is that is crystal clear to everybody. I mean, you have to be living under a rock to not know that. And so the importance of abortion to this it to the Democrats successes in this cannot be underestimated. And we know this because the Democrats ran some Democrats ran with a big focus on choice in their campaigns. We know this because in September, we started to see Republican candidates softening their position on abortion, withdrawing back from their hardline position. Um, Abortion also, we think, um, contributed, although we won't know this until we have further research, to an upswing in young voters and particularly young women voters. So this is a big deal. Okay, that issue was a big deal in a way that inflation, while clearly an important issue, um, wasn't just because it didn't have the clarity 
that abortion had. And so I think that that is one of the reasons that helped the Democrats um, in in this cycle. Now, there are Democrats still have danger. I mean, Steve is absolutely right. I mean, the Republicans nationally, just what he said about Maine is going to go on nationally. Republicans are going to be in a civil war. They're going to be, you know, trying to figure out how to get rid of some of them are going to try to figure out how to get rid of Donald Trump. Others are going to try to make excuses for for Donald Trump not being responsible for the showing. They've got they've got a war going on. Democrats still have vulnerabilities. The biggest vulnerabilities are on crime um, and um, and the immigration. And the Democrats got to figure out a way to keep their African-American base and still to, to make sure that people feel safe when the government is in their hands. So that that's a big challenge for Democrats. And as is immigration, um, you've got that Democrats have to have a better line about the border than they have. But fundamentally, Democrats, Republicans, de- Republicans have a built in structural advantage, particularly in the Senate and in the presidential race, which is every state gets two senators. Even if they're an itty bitty tiny state like Wyoming, which has literally more sheep than people in it, um, you still get two senators. And in a country where everybody lives on the two coasts with little pockets of population in Texas and Illinois, this this has been distorting to American politics in a way that it wasn't distorting for most of the 20th century. And this, again, has goes back to the fundamentals, goes back to our population, where our population has moved to, um, where it has concentrated, et cetera. So Democrats have to figure out a way to make some headway in these states because they come to the Senate and the presidential race with a big disadvantage. Yeah. Well, we're running out of time this afternoon. We could go on for a whole nother hour, but I want to give each of you a chance to um, take a minute and make any parting thoughts like what does this portend for the future of democracy and Maya I'm gonna lob it to you first well I absolutely think that the results of this election just show that we've got a big wave of new voters coming into our our pool of the voting population and it's it's up to our modern parties to figure out how are they going to engage these voters. And I think for the Republican Party, that's about figuring out why the Democratic Party has done so much better so far at engaging engaging the youth vote. And I think figuring that out is going to be critical for the, the long-term maintenance of our political parties. Is climate change an issue in that cohort? Just a quick yes or no there. Absolutely. Okay. Steve, um, what do you have to say? Last thoughts here about the future of democracy based on what we saw this November? Well, I just think the question was on the question you just asked me, I think was on the minds of a lot of voters um, on Tuesday. And um, I think that's a good thing because, you know, there was so much polling and speculation about whether or not people would care. And I don't think, as it turned out, they, they cared about the future of the country. Of course, they still care about inflation, right? That's a, that's a, that's very true. But what we saw in Maine and I think in other states is that uh, voters, while they 
they were rather certainly in pain from inflation and the high cost of goods and gas and oil, et cetera. They are they're worried. You know, they're worried about democracy. And um, I think this is very tr- this is very true. And in, in um, well, of my dad, my dad's a classic split ticket voter, and he told me I don't know about a month ago. He's like, there's no way I can vote for anybody who hasn't who denied the that Joe Biden won or anything like that. He's like, I'm going, I, I just can't vote for any of the Republicans in, that he that was on his ballot this year for those reasons. And I think at the end of the day, that's that was stunning to me because my dad's kind of like the everyman voter, you know? And I think that's that's really instructive. You know, I think at the end of the day, people may, we will have to see and do some research on this and hopefully Elaine and Brookings will help us along with that. But I have a feeling that that we're going to find out when the postmortems are all done, that uh, democracy was definitely on the ballot and, and it definitely shaped outcomes, um, just maybe not quite as much as abortion, but it certainly I think it was a was a was a key factor for a lot of voters. And I think that that's a good that's a good thing. Take it from there, Elaine. I, I couldn't agree with with Steve and with Maya Moore. I mean, I think democracy was on the ballot and in key places it won, although we have to remember it won narrowly. So we've got to keep vigilant about this. Um, I think abortion was on the ballot and this affected young voters, young women particularly. And I think that they will be energized and probably stay in um, stay in politics in in a, a significant way. So I think that that's important. Um, and fundamentally, I think that we, you know, we dodged a bullet this time. Okay, it looked like there was a full on attack on democracy going on. Uh, there was certainly in some states more than in others. And I think people finally said, no, enough of this. Like Steve's dad, they just said, we've had we've had enough of this stuff. And um, it remains to be seen whether this comes back. Um, but I think we had a pretty good election day all in all. Thank you all so much. We're out of time. Um, so I thank you to our guest this afternoon, Maya Icorn, liberal studies student at York County Community College and a fellow with Maine Students Vote. Elaine K. Mark, founding director at the Center for Effective Public Management and senior fellow in governance studies at Brookings and Steve Missler, chief political correspondent and statehouse bureau chief for Maine Public. We really enjoyed your reflections on the election today. You've been listening to the Democracy Forum, a project of the League of Women Voters Down East produced in cooperation with WERUFM streaming at WERU.org. If you have a comment about this show, send it to news at WERU.org. Please put Democracy Forum in the subject line. The League's website is LWVME.org for more information about this topic or to learn about other shows in our series. You can subscribe to our podcast at LWVME.org. Today's program is dedicated to our election heroes, the city and town clerks, the registrars and deputy registrars, deputy clerks, the wardens, and all the election workers who make our elections run smoothly for their professionalism and their dedication.